0: Take your Bible and turn to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. <clears throat> I'm going to have a bit of a lengthy reading, so I'm going to read it with a bit of purpose. Buckle up. <laughs> this is the Word of the Lord written for you today. Today. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with the fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the licks, la, ox licks up the grass of the field. So Barak, the son of Zippor, who is the king of Moab, at that time sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amal, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. They are dwelling opposite of me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. They came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princess of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he's riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. She said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Balaam said to the donkey, Because you've made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Then the angel of the Lord said, opened the eye, I'm sorry, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times, If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him in the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon, at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, behold, I've come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Then Balaam went with Balak they came to Kiriath-Huzoth, and Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to bamoth Baal. From there, he saw a fraction of the people. Now, skip ahead. This is a short section here. I'm just going to, a couple of verses. Chapter 23, starting in verse 18. This is Balaam's second oracle. Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor." God is not man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He is blessed. I cannot revoke it. He's not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, What has God wrought? Behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion itself, uh, a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey, and drunk the blood. Of the slain. And Balak said to Balaam, Do you not curse them at all. Do you not bless them at all. Now we're going to stop there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. This large chunk of scripture, <laughs> marvelous story. Thank you for passages like this in the Bible. And we praise you that you've spoken to us now in its reading. And we ask that you would give life and light in its preaching. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I suspect many of us like those moments in life when kind of the the veil that the curtain is pulled back just a little bit and we get to see what's actually going on. I mean there's an entire industry around this now, I guess, with documentaries, these new kind of infotainment documentaries where we get to see either the sporting franchise that we love or the murder that we don't love and kind of get to see what actually happened behind the scenes. Right? We um, I can't recommend any of these. I haven't watched any of these, but know they exist. The Jordan documentary, we get to see kind of all the highlights of Michael Jordan's career and argument for why he was so great, the greatest basketball player ever. Amazon has spent tens of millions of dollars in England working on the Premier League and filming soccer teams behind the scenes, all or nothing, and you get to watch Manchester City or whoever else uh, throughout their season. Uh, The NFL's invested, again, tens of millions in hard knocks, filming our favorite football teams behind the scenes to see exactly how much of a mess they are. In fact, actually, I suspect that's part of why this last week was so difficult for some politically, is uh, there was the hope that actually with the unsealing of an affidavit, we might be able to get to see a little bit behind the scenes of what's actually happening. That was never going to happen, but you hoped, didn't you? I suspect part of the reason why we kind of intuitively as humans have this feeling is because kind of deep in our soul, we know something's going on. Deep in our soul, we know something's happening in the world, and though it may seem like everything's kind of disconnected, though it may seem like everything's just kind of haphazard, and though it may feel a bit chaotic, deep down inside we know there's a God in charge of it all. I suspect that's true, namely because I'm exegeting Romans 1, verses 18 through 25 when I say it. We all know that. It's kind of built into the the nature of being human, to know that there's a God and He's in charge and He's doing things. But honestly, the vast majority of our lives, we kind of go day by day going, "I, I have God's promises, but I don't really get to see exactly what He's working on. I don't get to see it until we have those kind of brief glimpses in scripture where the lord pulls back the curtain and invites us in and shows us a little bit more of what's going on and i love that he has those the entire book of job right that's the whole point of the book of job is to kind of pull back the curtain to show us what's happening uh, in the divine throne room dealing between god and the evil one and his people Here in Numbers chapters 22, 23, and 24, we have a similar kind of moment because, interestingly, the people of God aren't even really in these chapters. It's a a true, real, historical story that takes place external to the people of God, but is absolutely connected to them. These are actually the moments that define large parts of their weeks and months coming up and, in fact, actually would cost some people their lives as they go into warfare. But in order to understand that, really, we have to have kind of two things that frame out the the setting, our our understanding, as we look at the text. Important thing number one, backdrop to the story— is that God has promised to Israel the land in the story, the real true historical story. Numbers, the whole book of Numbers, follows kind of the historical narrative of God's people as they're brought out of Egypt, they're brought out of slavery, they're numbskulls for a period, and so he wanders them around in the desert until they all die, and the new generation he then takes into the promised land. But the important thing to understand is that it is His promised land. Genesis 12, He promised it to Abraham. Abraham, all this land, it's going to be yours. It will belong to you and to your descendants. Genesis 26, He promises it to Isaac. Genesis 28, He promises it to Jacob. It's a lineage. It's promised to the nation of Israel. It's promised to the people of God. This is their land, God has promised. The second thing to kind of form in the background of our head is, as they are coming, let's see if I can do my geography backwards, this is a little bit tricky, coming from Egypt up, they've kind of crossed over in the Mediterranean Sea, and they're getting ready to go up into Jerusalem. They can't go the, the, the fast way, kind of directly up north. So what they're intending to do is to take the king's highway around the side so they can cross over the Jordan. The first nation they ask permission to go through is Edom. Uh, That's family history, right? That's Esau's uh, family related to Jacob and Esau, directly connected to the Jews. And what does Edom say? Nope, you can't come in. So they then ask permission to go through Moab, which again, Moab is the descendants of Lot. Lot's daughters, with Lot, uh, produce a nation called Moab. This is again family And so Israel's asking family permission to say, can we take our nation through your lands to get to our lands? We're not going to take your stuff. We'll just stick to the highway. We won't, you know, empty your wells and, you know, deplete your vines and fields. But the story picks up here where they've said, no, you can't. You can't go through Edom. You can't go through Moab. You have to take the long way around through the desert and the wilderness, through the rocky places and the high places, a really hard journey. Again, it's on foot. It's with a nation of a million and a half. You have to think there are pregnant ladies making that trip, right, giving birth along the way. You have to think there are aging saints that are dying along the way. There are older folks that are getting sick and still having to travel. It's a, a nation of a million and a half. You have to keep moving. It's a hard thing. And along the way, as David mentioned in his prayer, they've grumbled every step of the way, grumbled and grumbled and grumbled, what is God doing? What is God doing? What is God doing? And finally, we get a little bit of a glimpse into what God is actually doing. He's promised them the land. Now we have a bit of a conflict what are we going to do? Are they going to get the land? Now we have at this point Moab, and Moab is going to in a second get the Midianites to join in. Two nations in route to blocking the people of God from what God has promised. And if you're reading this kind of a Jewish background, you would have to go, well, what can frustrate God? Yeah, are the Moabites a big enough nation to frustrate God? In fact, actually, we're going to see a number of different things are kind of presented by Moses as potentials to frustrate the Lord's plans. Verses 1 through 14, really 1 through, yeah, we'll look at 1 through 14 in that regard. The first kind of characters are introduced to Moses' offering as somebody who might be big enough, who might be powerful enough, who might be grand enough or strong enough to keep God from keeping his promise. You know who might be able to keep God from keeping his promise? One of the greatest nations on earth. That's who? Moab. Eh, One of the greatest nations. I mean, they're not the greatest. They're several above them, but they're not small. I mean, they're not a nobody. The story picks up with the king realizing that, you know, in Israel, there are a lot of them. In fact, there are so many, it's really too hard to count them, and that's not a great thing to have in the land, probably just to the north and just to the, if I get my directions correct, west and then even further west of us. So, you know what? Let's figure out how to get rid of them. And you get to see the king of the nation, interestingly, doesn't wait for Israel to start something, doesn't wait for Israel to kind of declare their evil intentions, doesn't wait for Israel to do anything except exist as the people of God, and he goes on the offensive. He is a king, takes his entire nation, Moab, joins in with Midian, and turns both nations against the people of God. So much so that, and again, you can see a slightly more superstitious time. Actually, probably less so. We just trust in science as our superstition instead of sorcerers. Uh, They go and they hire a sorcerer, effectively. They hire a wizard, right? They go find Harry Potter to go pronounce a curse on the people of God. An amazing thing if you actually stop and think about it. You have two of the great nations in the region that are now not waiting for God's people to do anything other than exist, and they're seeking to root them out. And if you're going to be honest, friends, and if I'm going to be honest, there are pockets of the church even in our great nation that are currently trying to use that same scare tactic to prepare us for the future. Is God going to keep His promises? As as a church, are we going to be able to thrive? Are we going to be able to exist? Are our children going to have a good life? Are we going to be able to walk with God? Are we going to have a good life? Are we we going to be rich? That's not in the Bible, but I don't know where that one snuck in, but it's still there. And you know what? I worry about our politicians. That's how it goes, doesn't it? It doesn't matter which set of politicians are in. It just depends on which denomination you're in as to which set of politicians they distrust, by and large. But it's been a, a reoccurring scare tactic we've heard over the last 15 years, that your relationship to the Lord, that, that the success of your life, the good life for you, is threatened because of corrupt politicians. A great nation that's no longer acting great. Perhaps a president or a congress or whatever else that are intentionally making your life hard or bad. And you know what? boy, they're actually strong enough, they might win against God. No, when you say that, actually, that, that doesn't make sense any at all, does it? When you actually say it out loud, should I be afraid of what the government's power is? Should I be afraid of the fact that they're corrupt? Should I be afraid that they're breaking their own laws? Interestingly, in the kind of moment in time in history where the Lord kind of peels back the curtain to show us what's happening with his people, that's exactly what's happening. Their nation, the nation of Moab, Midian, they're so corrupt at this point, they're literally hiring a wizard to try to curse them so that their armies would be weakened so they can invade them and kill them later. That's pretty much the definition of evil. You're not working for the good guys when you're actively trying to involve the demons to curse the other side. Not, not in the good guys. And it begs the question: Is Balak, Balak the king? Is he strong enough? Is he powerful? Is he mighty enough to invalidate the promises of God for you? The promises of God for the land. Well, let's see. So they go, and he uh, sends his princes and others, and they hire, like I said, the local Harry Potter to try to pronounce a curse on the people of God. Now, Balaam is one of the most kind of interesting characters in the scriptures because, by every indication, he is a prophet for hire, he's a mercenary. Like I said, a wizard of some kind who what he would do is if you brought him the proper amount of money, he would inquire of whichever god you wanted him to inquire of until that god answered him, which they never did. And then he would talk to that god and curse them. That was what his job was. It's a really sweet racket because you can never be called on it. You really can't be double checked. Did you talk to their god and then have him curse place? Well, there's no proof on that. You can't show your work in any way. Or something different happens this time. He goes to inquire of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the living and true God, to have a conversation to curse Israel. And what does God say? Uh, that ain't happening. No way, no how. Even though you are a corrupt prophet, even though you are a prophet for hire, a corrupt preacher of the worst kind that ain't happening. There's nothing that you're going to be able to do, Balaam, that would be able to hinder my promises on my people. Nothing that you would be able to do to limit them. You can't even curse them. In fact, actually to prove this to you, and this is my favorite part of the entire story, the opening salvo, the opening part of God's conversation with this, and he says, you're not even going to be able to say the words. When you open your mouth, yeah, you're not even going to say the words. You can't hurt my people. So, I mean, if you're thinking about this, is a pretty kind of negative thing, right? You, you have two of the great nations in the region arrayed against the people of God. You've got the local wizard who's actually so successful at his kind of evil efforts, whatever that meant and whatever that looked like, that they're willing to, in essence, pay a king's ransom to get him to do it because he's been so successful in the past Surely these things, an evil government and the forces of evil themselves, surely those would be enough to hurt the people of God. Surely. In fact, actually, you get this kind of bizarre and wonderful and amazing interaction with Balaam and the donkey to show you how bad of a man he is. There's nothing redeeming about this man in this conversation. He's going to be a gun for hire, to curse Israel for money. He knows that he's not going to be able to actually do that, so instead he's just taking the king's money and going to do the exact opposite. So at this point he's now kind of being a bit duplicitous because he's going to take all of Balak's money in order to give the curse but never actually curse them because he's not going to be able to. And then when his donkey starts acting up, he displays his very heart character kind of over and over again. He's not a patient man. He's not a kind man. Here he has an old, faithful animal that has served him faithfully for years, and the second that she starts acting cantankerous, his temper snaps, his violent spirit is shown. And rather than training the donkey the way he should he just beats her. Until you have this kind of just moment of absolute brilliance where the Lord equips her to talk, gives her a voice, honestly, gives her a nicer temperament than he does Balaam. Because her question is pretty cool, right? It's an honest question, doesn't have any curse words or insults, which I think most of us would probably have done if we'd just been beaten with a staff. She's like, What are you doing? What are you doing? And his answer in verse 29 is amazing. Again, it shows his character, what kind of uh, fool he is. He's, Why am I mad at you? Because you're making me look like a fool. You're embarrassing me. What a dumb answer. You know why my temper's exploding? Why, you, know why, you know why I'm beating you? Because I'm embarrassed. And the way I deal with my embarrassment is with violence to others. That never happens here. That's, uh, that's the heart of an abuser right there, friends. Somebody who deals with their own embarrassment by punishing others with violence. The donkey asks a question, you know, have I ever mistreated you? <laughs> He's forced to say, no. The Lord opens his eyes. He sees the angel of the Lord standing in front of him in glory and grandeur. This is terrifying. Probably the Lord Jesus, armed, ready to kill, kind of like we see at the end of Revelation. And interestingly, you get to see again just the corruption of this man in his apology. Verse 34. Balaam said to the angel, Lord, I've sinned. What does what is, what is he identify? Now, friends, this is, I'm going to let you in a little secret. Right, Pastoral Counseling 101 right here behind the secret, but pull the curtain back and let you in. The importance of an apology is, a, is the description of what it's for right? The value of an apology is what you describe it being for. If I stand up here and say, I'm sorry your feelings were hurt, is that a good apology? No. That's my wife. That was my wife. Actually, that really was my wife saying no. Why is it not a good apology? Because who did the wrong thing? You did because your feelings got hurt. It's an absolutely wretched apology. The value of an apology is determined by how well you describe the thing you're apologizing for. And interestingly, what does Balaam say? I've sinned. Why? Because I got caught. I didn't know you were standing there. I'm not sad I was beating the donkey. I'm not sad that I was treating my animal terribly. I'm not sad that I'm a bad man. I'm sad that the angel of the Lord was standing in front of me and I got caught. Sorry. All right, this is the uh, teenage boy gets busted by mom, and his apology is I'm sorry, mom, I didn't know you were standing there when I hit my sister. How do I apologize for hitting the sister? Not apologizing for doing it in front of mom. He's a bad man, he's a wicked man, and the worst kind. So interestingly, you have the great evil nation, Moab, here betraying family, turning their back, going to stab Israel in the back. You have a wicked, wicked wizard working against them. Is that big enough to defeat our God? Now, again, if if you're listening, you kind of hopefully would understand that that is a point that applies, a question that applies today perfectly for us all. Because God's promises haven't changed. God himself hasn't changed. He's been in the business of making promises to his people from the very beginning of when he made them. And honestly, so much of our stress, so much of our anxiety, so much of our misery, so much of our insecurity, so much of our impatience, so much of our anger, so much of our sadness, so much of all of the bad things in our life are a result of us looking at that question and answering it incorrectly. Is this problem big enough to defeat God's promise. surely a, a, a wicked nation. surely a wicked king, surely a, a wicked wizard, surely demonic influences, surely our, our inflation, surely the job market, surely that neighbor that's making me crazy, surely that spouse. Surely whatever it is is big enough to defeat the promise of God. And guess what? You answer that anything other than God is bigger. It produces misery on every front of your life. You answer that question with any other answer than Jesus wins, and you end up with misery in some part of your life. Now, I don't mean that in the sense of like God punishes you for it sort of misery. I mean it in the sense of your heart is unwell. It makes you afraid of what will happen with your boss because that boss is more powerful than God. Make you insecure with how you interact with your fellow classmates because their opinion will be powerful enough to change your self-worth. It will make you impatient with your spouse because your spouse's periodic mistreatment followed by apology will be big enough to upset your happiness You see, answering those questions with anything other than Jesus is winning, God is big, produces emotional turmoil and sadness, unhappiness, misery. The story doesn't end here. Chapters 23 and 24 are some of the most marvelous. I didn't have a chance to read them out loud, but you should read them this afternoon. It's fantastic. Balaam goes to Balak and takes Balak's money in order to kind of give these oracles, to give these curses, these pronouncements against the people of God. And you would think this is like, you know, the nexus of evil, an evil king an evil wizard plotting against the people of God. Ah, oh, this, is, this is it. And for four times, three at the request of the king, and then one freely volunteered, Balaam speaks. And every time he speaks, when he goes to curse God's people, the only thing that comes out is blessing. He can't even say it. He can't. That one I read, that second one that I read is so fantastic because the first parts of it are just kind of descriptive. Look, the Lord is, he's God. He's not a man like us. He doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. When he speaks it, it's true. So when he spoke his promises about Israel, he wasn't lying. God doesn't lie. So when he said that he would be with them, he's with them, and that's not going to change. And when he said he would give them his power, he gave them his power and when he said he would be victorious, he wasn't lying. So then verse 24, you have that great description where Balaam is pronouncing, quote, a curse, and he's like, yeah, Israel's going to be like a lion. She's going to eat your face and tear you to pieces. And the king's like, I don't like this. You need to stop. That's not right. I paid you to curse Israel. And Balaam's like, it's the best I got, man. I mean, the only thing I can say is just more blessing after more blessing after more blessing. I can't stop blessing them. Even until the final one, and this is, my, I think, the most special. Here, the king is so furious he's fed up with him. He's so done with him. 24, verse 15, Balaam starts speaking anyways. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the word of God, knows the knowledge of the Most High. This is the true, real oracle. This is the truth that will happen. What will happen? I see him. This is not God, but not now. I behold him not yet near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. It break down the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Sarah with all his... There's going to be a king coming. He's not ready yet. He's not going to be born right now. But there's going to be a king coming. And when he shows up, you better buckle up, Buttercup because he's going to kill you all. And his name would be David. He would show up, and he would kill everyone. And then the people he didn't kill, his son would kill. And all of their enemies would die. And it's fulfilled, in part. But fulfilled in full later. Because here you have the wicked prophet talking to the wicked king trying to do wickedness against the people of God, and you get one of the most beautiful portraits of Jesus that any unbeliever has ever spoken. That a king would come, and that he would be victorious and defeat all of the enemies of the people of God, and no one, nowhere, no how would be able to stop his efforts no one would be able to get in the way. In fact, actually, even death is going to step into the arena that time. He's going to do battle. This new king is going to do battle, not just against governments, not just against wicked wizards. He's going to do battle against death itself, and death is going to tap out. It's like, I don't have it. I don't got it. I'm not strong enough to beat this guy. I can take everyone else, but I can't take that guy. Because this king, the king that's coming, the king that Balaam, wicked Balaam, is prophesying. Would show up 1,500 years later, give or take 100 years. And would establish a kingdom. A kingdom that would grow and would flourish until it is fully and totally victorious. You see, friends... If you are currently in Christ, you are a member of that kingdom. Now, right now. We're not waiting for the kingdom later. We're not waiting for Jesus to come back for the kingdom to happen. Remember, read your Gospels. What's Jesus' message? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The king's here. And he's ruling and he's reigning victoriously now. And so what we have in Balaam and in Balak is actually an opportunity for us to kind of actually pull back the curtain in our own lives and say, all of those worries that I have about the negative things and the evil things and the evil people and the evil government and the evil culture and evil Hollywood and evil whatever it is, all of those worries that I have are surpassed by the promises of God. that King Jesus stepped inside creation, stepped inside humanity, stepped inside real human existence, did battle with temptation in a way that I cannot even conceive of dealing with it. To go to the cross to take my deserved punishment to take your deserved punishment, to take it on the cross, to suffer the sum totality of the wrath of God, even to the point where he could say about God's wrath, it is finished. How much wrath do you have to go through on the cross to say the wrath of an infinite God is finished? It's finished. remains under the power of the grave for a while until even the grave is not big enough. Even the grave is not great enough. He's raised by His own power to life again, to victory. And friends, He has given that life and that victory to His people. It's from that perspective that maybe His commands make a bit more sense when He says, be anxious about nothing. Why do you worry? Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Be at peace. Be at rest. Be people of joy. Why? It's not in yourself that you're hoping. It's not in this church that you're hoping. It's certainly not in me. It's in our God who is victorious. Now, some of you, I'm going to be up front, probably do this pretty well, that you have those moments of kind of... Fear and tension and anxiety that come in. And you self diagnose them very rapidly and you go, Ooh, I'm afraid. I didn't realize I was afraid. And then you go to the Bible. And that's correct. Some of us, however, are not particularly astute at what's happening inside our hearts. And so we have those moments where we're really cranky and everybody else around us knows that we're really cranky and we have no idea why. And for those that are in that category, those of us perhaps that struggle with things like that, friends, I'm lovingly going to say there's probably an element in your heart in which, though you would not say it intellectually, emotionally, you've kind of given up ground to say that this thing, whatever it is, in this moment in time, is big enough to defeat God's love for me. That the God who loves me, who's promised to take care of me, Psalm 121, he promises to watch over me even when I'm asleep, he doesn't. That whatever my struggle is, that it's gotten the better of his promises, it's bigger. If you find yourself in that situation, first, I would encourage you to spend a little time thinking about it so you can understand what's happening in your head. You're going, oh, I didn't realize that. Really, at the heart of this is just fear. I'm afraid of my spouse. I'm afraid of of the fact that my kids might not love me. Do you know how much parenting mistakes are made because parents are afraid their kids won't love them or won't like them? I'm afraid I'll have to work harder than I want to. I'm afraid I won't have enough money. I'm afraid Friends, all of that, that's just fear. <laughs> that's sin. If you find yourself in that situation, please confess. Confess to the Lord. He knows your heart. but confess your sin to the Lord and, and plead that God would give you a new understanding of the victory that Christ Jesus. Accomplished on the cross, but really is just an outworking of that plan from before creation even existed. Because God has loved you before the world even was made. And if the fall itself can't stop him from loving you, I suspect whatever is in front of you right now can't either. Whether that be chemo, or counseling, Grief or joy, the Lord's love is bigger than that. Father, we do confess our sins. We don't like to admit them. We don't like to admit them to ourselves, much less to others. But so many of us, we struggle with this. That we spend our lives in fear a fear that's fueled by our culture, a fear that's fueled by the marketing departments of our news agencies, of our medical industry, of our food industry, where so much of our life is is motivation to consume out of fear. To purchase out of fear because I won't have the good life if I don't have this. Lord, we confess that's wrong because you are the good life. And anyone who has the Son has the Father and the Spirit. So if we are in Christ, we have the good life no matter what happens with our health, our wealth, our families or our joys. You tell us this in the Scriptures, better is one day in your presence than a thousand elsewhere. And we know that intellectually. Oh, but we are quick to forget that emotionally. Forgive us for our sin and change our hearts, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen.